podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. I think we got the game into a situation that even though we had the four overs to 17 that we potentially could have won it. Um, we've, you know, we're sitting back in now, I think the players will feel it's a missed opportunity to win a series. Um, away from home, which is always a, a huge accomplishment. So um, now we've got our work cut out, short turnaround to Cape Town and uh, prepare as best we can to, to, to perform well there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, and joining me, Jaleesa Apps has returned. Welcome. I'm back. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to be back. Good, good, good. And, of course, Paul Dennett's here. Paul, how are you? Good, manners. G'day, everyone. How are you going? Very good. That was Andrew McDonald, the Australian standing coach, speaking after Australia lost the second T20 to South Africa. So in this episode, we're going to wrap up those T20s. We're going to dive into the Women's T20 World Cup. Jaleesa and I have been preaching caution, and it seems like it was the right idea. And then we'll be naming our top cricket commentators and then bringing it home with Can't Let It Go. But let's start. The T20 series in South Africa is locked at one all. Paul, you have been staying up all night <laughs> watching these games. Mm. So I roped you in to give me a summary. Tell me, what happened? Well, yeah, I've been very sleep deprived over the last few days. Um, but the games have been good. I think that the takeout message is what a robust sporting nation South Africa are because that first game... Australia absolutely crunched them. And I think um, symbolic of the way that South Africa's going. It was a sellout at the Wanderers, yet there was an entire stand completely empty because that morning there'd been a, a, a storm and after the storm damage, they'd said it was unfit for human human habitation. So it's a bit of a concern. And, the, you know, they're up against an Australian side that is rich and strong and um, absolutely firing. And that first game, uh, South Africa... Were, Utterly terrible. Like the first six overs, they just kept on bowling. Especially Rabada and Tini just kept on bowling short and wide and Finch and Smith belted them everywhere. They, they sort of redressed it a bit. They got some spin on. Pefliquea bowled pretty well, but still Australia finished up with 196. And then uh, I mean, Ashtonaga took a hat-trick and even before he took a hat-trick, the game was already over. Stark bowled a beautiful ball to dismiss De Kock and he's the new captain, Quentin De Kock. He played this airy sort of um, wafted a, a, a vicious in a vicious ball that swung uh, out to him but started on the leg stump and so hit middle stump and yeah the Australians just pummeled them and yet then the second game South Africa came back and won it and you just say that's they had no right to do that Australia really uh, had all the momentum there I think they're a better side and they should have won but I think the second game um, was probably a bit of a, a poor pitch because the cock at the toss indicated that it was going to be a sort of bat first wicket because it was going to get lower and slower as the day went on, and that's what happened. So I think that there's a lot of criticism of the Australian middle order in that in that in that run chase that Marsh and Agar and uh, Wade and Carey really didn't get going. But I think conditions were pretty tough. Even Smith and Warner ultimately were not scoring all that much more than a runner more than a runner ball. So it was pretty difficult. Australia probably could have batted a little bit better and maybe bowled a little bit better at the start, but I think you can toss that second game out of the window in terms of the form book. Mm. So, um, you know, all things being equal, then um, Australia should really win the third game, but who knows with T20, one beginnings can, can turn it around. What about Ashton Agar? Five for in the first game. He took a hat trick. It was sensational. Even a week ago, I sent out a tweet, and he wasn't in my 20 oversight. I had Stephen O'Keefe in there. But was I wrong? Has Agar shown what he can do? Oh, look, I don't say think you're wrong for having O'Keefe in there because, you know, as you and I are the biggest fans for Steve O'Keefe going around. He's been made 12th man for this current New South Wales game that we're watching, which has enraged me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think Agar has to be uh, in, the, in the side, in, in, in the reckoning, definitely for the, 
for the World Cup. He played well in the first game. He clouded 18 off the last over, which uh, got Australia up to 196, which was uh, an important little innings as well. So, yeah, I think Agar's in there um, uh, unless something surprising happens. I thought there was a lot more to take out of probably what you were saying, a lot more to take out of that first game than the second game, particularly with our our batting effort. I thought there was a really all-round batting effort. And Alex Carey actually said in his press conference that this is the most settled the team, the 2020 team, has been. And I tend to agree with that because we've always had our bowlers pretty settled or we've had people that we can bring in uh, and are sure of, even now with, you know, Hazelwood. You could throw in there easily. Absolutely, uh, there are spinners. Steve O'Keefe, I would, I would agree in there. So I agree that the that with Alex Carey that this is the most settled the team has has been, and I took a lot out of that uh, first game more than the second game. I agree with you. I think the pitch was a, was a bit. Yeah, it was dodgy. a bit. Yeah, and the, as soon as the new ball got a bit old for both sides, run scoring became became pretty difficult. Obviously, Maxwell is the one that's going to come back in, and we missed him badly. Uh, in this match, in this series, for his for his batting and his bowling, and I, I still think Hazelwood should come back in as well. I know that they really like Kane Richardson. He bowled very well in the second game. If I'm picking my number one side, I still don't find a place for him in it. With regret, because I think he's a better bowler than I once gave him credit for. But I, mm. I want Hazelwood in there. Andrew McDonald, after the second game, was talking about the fact that the Australian top order for T20 cricket now is pretty settled. They want Warner, Finch, and Smith to bat as the top three, and then everything below that is interchangeable depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. Justin Lang has mandated that he wants those middle-order players to be flexible <laughs> and they, they use the example of Matt Wade who can sort of bat anywhere in that middle order and, as you say, you could put Glenn Maxwell in that camp. The jury's still out on Mitchell Marsh. I can't tell you how many angry tweets I've got in the last few days about <laughs> Mitchell Marsh. He is yeah. not a popular character. He's not, and I, I don't have the same passion for for being like or hate for Mitchell Marsh. It's just take it take him or leave him for me. Really. Yeah, but the selectors keep taking him. That's the problem. They, yeah, they keep taking <laughs> him. I was surprised at the second game. There was a lot of criticism too of um, David Warner. I saw people criticising that uh, he's 67 not out um, or 56, but that people were saying he was too slow. And I thought that was really unfair. No, I agree with you. Um, I think if you didn't watch the game, maybe you could look at the scoreboard and say, oh, he should have scored more quickly. But the fact was that uh, he did score quickly, just as de Kock did. And then when the ball got low and slow, yeah. it just became really hard to, to, to go quickly. I suppose in hindsight, what the Australians <coughs> might have done in that second game is realised we have to go hell for leather in these first six overs. And someone like Marsh, Wade and those guys aren't going to really succeed once it gets low and slow. That's when you want Smith and, and Carey. Those are the guys that I really think could have succeeded in manipulating the ball around there. So maybe they should have pinch hit Mitchell Marsh or someone said go up the top of the order and try and hit every ball for six because you're not going to be very useful later on in the innings. The other thing that's interesting about Marsh, he hasn't bowled a ball yet um, in, in the series. So he's nominally in there as an all-rounder. Yeah. But, um, I mean, Australia's bowled pretty well. So it, but it's strange that he hasn't bowled a ball. Now, there was some concerns that the South African crowds might turn on this Australian side, but all the reports coming in are that the atmosphere's been very festive over there. They've been very welcoming. Obviously, um, maybe some residual guilt over the treatment last I, time we were there. I say fire up. The crowd? Have a crack. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want them to be mean, but I do – the, the thing I really like about South Africa is how passionate the crowd do get. Again, I don't want it to be vicious or nasty, but – There's passionate and there's, there's abusive. There's passionate though. and then That's there's the abusive, p- exactly. But I think you can be passionate. And I wondered a little bit, have South African fans turned a little bit on South African cricket? Because they are in a bit of a crisis on and off the field. Um, their chief executive obviously was suspended at the end of last year. They're in a bit of a hole financially. They're in a hole on the field. Um, and I wondered if there was a little bit, I don't know, reading some of the South African media, it just feels like they're a little bit bitter towards their own team. They are, and the administration. Yeah, and Ashton Agar um, said in the press conference that they asked him about the crowd and he actually said um, that they got up and applauded after the Australian National Anthem, which I think is a lovely sign of respect, but... Not something you would expect in South Africa. No, and perhaps T20 crowds generally are a bit more lighthearted yeah, for a good time, have a couple of cold beverages and just have a good evening. Unlike a test crowd, that might be a bit more serious. I've really enjoyed the atmosphere. Uh, the second game that Port Elizabeth, they have the brass band that's famous there. They just played three and a half hours straight. Um, and it was a very, very festive atmosphere. 
But I was amazed that there was no booing whatsoever of Warner and Smith in, in, at all. The only time they booed slightly was when Stain dropped the ball midway through bowling it and it bounced three times before Smith and he clouted it for four, uh, even as the umpire signaled dead ball. There was a booing for about two seconds. I thought, oh, here we go. But then it, it completely stopped. So, yeah, it, it's felt like a, a celebration of the sport, which um, has been a, a pleasant surprise for me. Australia now playing uh, Cape Town, so it'll be interesting mm. if you're returning to the actual scene of the crime, whether it'll be a little different. They did both say that it was hard uh, when they were returning the, the deja vu and the feeling I that bet. they were getting. All right, well, that was the two T20 games, the deciding games happening at the end of this week. It might have already taken place by the time you're listening to it, but the series is locked at one all. We're going to take our first break and then we'll be back with the cricket headlines. But before that, I just want to remind you, if you have a moment, go on our social media and follow us on at Oz Cricket Pod. That's AUS Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered and um, we're on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. So go and find us on there. We put on a few bits of videos and stuff like that from the shows. All right, coming up after the break, the headlines. I hope today showed a little bit about character, to be honest. You know, World Cup tournaments aren't easy and, um, you know, playing at home, we're actually really enjoying that opportunity to do it, but you can't escape from the fact that it's different from a normal series where perhaps you can, you know, drop a game here or there, but, you know, you can get back in the contest, whereas World Cup cricket, you have to keep winning. That's the nature of the beast. So, yeah, I'm sure that there was a, a couple of nerves today, but, yeah, I, I hope today showed a lot of all the character that's in the group. That was Rachel Haynes, Australian vice-captain for the women's team. And uh, she made a vital half-century in the second game of the tournament against Sri Lanka to get the Aussies over the line. So let's get into the cricket headlines, brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. So the Women's World Cup has started. It's been fantastic so far. But before the World Cup, I was thinking everyone was getting ahead of themselves, expecting Australia to make the final and then the MCG would be full with almost 100,000 people. But we saw in the first game, Australia lost the opener to India at Sydney Showground Stadium. India made four for 132 and Australia were all out for 115. The only positive being Alyssa Healy coming back to form with 51. But... Even straight away, we saw how competitive this tournament's going to be. Yeah, I really disliked the marketing campaign in the lead-up to this Women's World Cup. I thought some of it was really risky and it assumed that Australia's going to be there. Not only the that, Jaleesa, do you think it actually put extra pressure on the team? Absolutely, it put a For massive amount of pressure. two years talking about Australia being in the final with 90,000 people. Yeah, it put a huge amount of pressure and I think that unnecessary. It's a pressure anyway whenever you're hosting a World Cup in your country. But then to put that whole marketing campaign resting on them making it was just so risky and it was if they didn't make it, it then made the tournament, it will make the tournament look like a failure. And, mm. it, and it's not a failure, whoever makes it. The thing that I hated about the marketing campaign, and it, I think it's really lazy, was the break the world record. I don't care about a world record. I want people to go because they want to see the cricket. And I also don't know why we have to rush the success of sports. It doesn't need to be rushed. It doesn't need this kind of gimmicks. And I was thinking it was setting it, setting it up for failure. I, I found um, a, a seminal moment for me was a, a few weeks before, oh no, it was a couple of days before the the uh, WBBL final when I was unusually for me in my local pub. And um, there was uh, a couple of old blokes there that have been there forever and they only acknowledged the existence of rugby league and cricket. And they were having this passionate argument and um, I, I listened in and they were talking about um, the permutations of the WBBL as who was going to make the final. And they were talking intelligently and knowledgeably about it. And that's the first time that uh, I'm, I'm amazed to hear these um, you know blokes into their 60s and 70s talking that way. So I think... Uh, the game has come a long way. I get your point, but I can see why they have marketed it in the way that they have done because there are unfortunately still millions of male Australians who women's cricket just doesn't resonate with. And I suppose they're trying to get one way of saying it, that, you know, this is a big deal. We are not talking about 2,000 that were there for the 2009 World Cup final at, the, at North Sydney Oval, the 50-over World Cup. We're talking about a major sporting event that could get 95,000 people. If Australia don't make the final, I still think they will get a massive crowd. I still think they'll get 80-odd thousand or something. Really? Yeah. I don't. I, I, I think they'll I be don't. lucky to get 40,000. I think you need India 
And I don't think that's a failure. I just don't think that it's – I don't. I, I think they are going to struggle for numbers. I just think T20 is actually hard to get crowds to international T20s, even to the men sometimes. Mm. I, I don't – I just don't like – I feel like it was really setting it up – for failure, and I the same as you, Paul. I actually heard a couple of older gentlemen talk about the World Cup in the same way. Are you I referring thought, to Paul and I? <laughs> I I was doing this podcast that, that we do. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> uh, and I was really, I was, I, I was really, I, I guess it made me fill me with all kinds of joy to hear that. Yeah. Um, and the game has come a long way, but I I don't like this rush for success that it, we we have to have. We just have to appreciate. The great game for what it is right now. All right. Well, I want to go on record in saying that in the unfortunate event that Australia doesn't make the final, I think the crowd will be gargantuan. I think it will be 80,000 plus, much as it was in 1992 when Australia didn't make the final of the 50-over World Cup and it was still 87,000. I know that men's 50-over cricket was well established at that stage, but that's still a massive crowd for a non-home final. So I think that people will still turn up. Mm. I hope. I really hope that you are right too. Mm. Yeah, I'm not that sure. It wasn't even a big crowd at the first game. That was so disappointing. Uh, when Australia, Australia took on India at Sydney Showground, and it wasn't a, a great pitch for the Australians to start mm, the tournament no. on. Really suited India's bowling. They've got this spinner Poonam Yadav mm. who bowls about 60 kilometres an hour by all oh, reports. She was awesome. So she's very very slow. And there was even one ball that bounced twice before it got to Ash Gardner and she was out bowled. But then the umpires took a replay to to find out that it was a a no ball because it had bounced twice. So, yeah, Australia started slowly, but then on Monday night they bounced back against Sri Lanka, chasing 123 to win. They won by five wickets. But at one stage Australia was three for ten and – messages were coming in that this campaign's probably over. But then Rachel Haynes, who we just heard from, and Meg Lanning put on a big partnership and and that got them to safety. But, boy, the wobbles are in effect. Hopefully getting through this Sri Lanka game will be the the fillip that the women's team needs. The batting is what's really struggling and it's just all over the place. We saw Alyssa Healy... um, she sort of bounced back in that first game from her poor form, but then got a duck. Mm. Um, Lise Perry, first baller. Yeah, first yeah. golden duck in the first game. Yeah, I, I, the batting's all over the place, and I feel like that is nerves. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. World Cups, you know, they ramp up the pressure. The, the extra consequence really makes a difference. But I, I guess Australia should take some heart. England lost to South Africa. That was a bit of an upset. So that could change the semi-final equations. The South African women were chasing 33 off the last three overs and chased it down. And that was the first time they've beaten the England women in a T20. Sophie Devine for the Kiwis scored 75 not out of 55 against the Windies. And uh, Australia plays. Yeah, absolutely. And Australia plays. Um, the Kiwis in their last group game, so they wouldn't want to come up against a rampaging Sophie Devine in a, a must-win game. What's going on with uh, with Perry? Why is she so far down the order? I think there's a, a feeling that she's not quite aggressive enough for the the top order of the Australian T20 side. She does well opening for the Sixers, but her strike rate sort of is middling most of the time. Yeah, I just don't think she's really locked down a spot. It's just not a consistent power hitter. I uh, see I disagree with that. A lot of people say the same thing and I I think she gets pigeonholed as a test batter and I don't think she's given enough credit for how well she does go in the WBBL. The thing I would say um maybe and I rejected this initially, maybe she has an injury. Hmm. Because today uh at Channel 9 we got shots of her uh leaving Perth and she had strapping on the shoulder that she, she always tends to have that. Did she? Yeah. She has. She's had that for a lot of the summer. Because I hadn't noticed it. I've seen her with that. I, I had quite noticed a few it times. when she got it when she got injured in the WBBL just after that. But I hadn't noticed it recently. Mm. Maybe she's carrying a little bit of a niggle. But then I think, well, you wouldn't think she'd bowl a four overs, no. would you? Well, and we need Perry firing if we're going to win this tournament. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a, a moral question for both of you. Oh. So I, I spoke about the South Africa England game. There was an incident in the last over where. South Africa needed seven to win off about four balls and Catherine Brunt ran in Mm. and she saw that the non-striker was out of her crease, backing up. And instead of affecting a man cad, Catherine Brunt warned the player and then next ball she bowled, it was hit for six and it was effectively game over. Do you think she should have just run out the opponent? Probably, yeah. 
you think, just yeah, take I the do. wicket? I just was fair in love and war. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? I think she should have in terms of there's no moral problem with doing it. The, the thing is, out of self-interest, do you want to bring all the criticism and the media storm into you that you're, you're then going to get? Some people wouldn't care, but others would. And I'd, I'd feel that way. I think, oh, God, do I really want to go through with this and be talked about the world over for having done this? Uh, I was listening to Jared Waitley talking about it on Melbourne Radio the other day, and he, he said we should take the stigma out of it by stop calling it a manker, just calling it a run-out, calling it a run-out at the bowler's end. That's a good point. And I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think that it's... Um, uh, I have no problem with someone running them out. Uh, apparently, the next ball that was hit for six, the, the, um, it didn't cause the, the, the non-striker to stay within her crease. Anyway, she's still half a metre out the next time, so the, the warning didn't really work. Because bowlers get pinged when they overstep when they're bowling by a millimetre. Mm. They're a millimetre over, well, not behind the line, then it's a no ball and they might lose a wicket. So why does a non-striker you know, have a few metres to play with? Well, I, I said today that in the commentary in The Shield that maybe they should come up with a crazy idea that now that the third umpire is going to be looking at these, if at the, the point of release of the ball from the bowler's hand, the batsman at the non-striker's end is out of their crease, they should say it's a no ball for the, for the batting side, that that is one run to the bowling side and um, away you go. I've got no problem. It's a novel idea. I, I think it's the it's the same as the... You're ruthless, Jaleesa. I'm pretty you, ruthless. I would hate to come up against you in a sporting <laughs> event. Well, I just think when so much is on the line, perhaps if you were playing a Shield game where something where it wasn't... Or, like there wasn't a final or it wasn't, you know, uh, it, maybe, but it, there was so much on the line at that particular moment. And just be, I, yep, just be ruthless. Just ruthless. Good stuff. One interesting thing with the um, the next game Australia's playing, again, you'd pencil in a victory for Australia against Bangladesh. But they're playing at Manuka over, which tends to be a little bit on the slow side as well. Mm. And there's going to be two games before that at Manuka the day before. And I don't know whether they're going to use a fresh pitch for Australia or not. But if they don't use a fresh pitch and there's going to have then been 80 overs on that pitch, then that could play into Bangladesh's hands as well. All right. Well, that was our wrap of the Women's World Cup. I've got one question for both of you. Now, we're Australia A are taking on the England Lions sort of at the moment at the MCG in a pink ball four-day affair. And there hasn't been much to write home about for the Australia A side. Curtis Patterson batted well in the second innings. But... This is being seen as maybe a bit of a test for a possible day-night Boxing Day test. Jaleesa, would you like to see them play a day-night Boxing Day fixture? 100%. 100%? Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. I, um, you really big... do love Shane Warne. Because <laughs> Warne has been pushing for this for ages. You and Warne are like... Symbos- Kindred spirits. Yeah. Uh, we're spirit animals. I I love day-night cricket, and I think on Boxing Day when you've got that party atmosphere, absolutely. I agree, and part of me would be sad because sometimes the quality of the pink ball still isn't quite where it could, where it hopefully will mm. get to. But what I hate most on the 27th <coughs> and the 28th of December is when there is a crowd of 55,000 at the MCG and it looks half empty and mm. um, you just think, well, maybe if they if they did make it that day-night game, they, they could get 80,000 to days two and three and four, which they, t- they tend to do for the Ashes only. So, yeah, I'm all for it as well. Yeah, I think the crowd numbers would be huge. I agree. Yeah, I'm dead against it. I think really? you two are fine to think that way. But I actually what think it would, like? would kill the Big Bash. When would you play the Big Bash if they're playing the Boxing Day test till 9 or 10 at night? So, Big Bash just for that day, though. Well, you pay it played in the morning, like 9 o'clock starts before the really? test match. I, I think the jury's still out on it. No, the, no, I don't think that anyone else is caring about the Big Bash on that day. Like, the Big Bash is great. It's the best thing to happen in Australian cricket in a long time. But when it comes to the Boxing Day test, what is right for the Boxing Day test is all that matters. And the Big, big, the big Bash can look after itself. Mm, I they, think Cricket Australia would vehemently disagree with I you. I know the three of us aren't in this category, but there are a lot of cricket fans that don't watch the Big Bash. But they, if they play the Big they can play the Big Bash in the, in the, earlier in the day. If the, if the um, game is on at, say two in the afternoon. They could play a big bash game easily at 10, 10 in the morning. Well, if, if they want to do that, that's not a bad way of doing it. You're just kind of swapping it, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. You, you're swapping the order. Maybe I've been convinced. Wow. What? <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy. We are solving the world's problems. That was quick. <laughs> yep. Um, all right. So we've moved on from the headlines now. That was uh, wild. That was wild. Um All right, let's move on from headlines. And I want to talk about our favourite cricket commentators of the current period. So I don't want our all-time favourite commentators because I'm sure we're all, well, 
you know, we could go back and pick John Arlett if we wanted to. But oh, Of course. Alan McGilvray, <laughs> yeah. Victor Richardson. That's right. But, yeah, let's pick our top three current commentators. Paul, who are the commentators that you like? And then next show we'll give you our most annoying commentators. Oh, I don't want to do that. It's all right. We can do it. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, this is one. This is the nice one. We get to say who we like. To, for me, the ones that I like weren't, weren't actually in action in Australia this summer. A lot, plenty of the ones in Australia this summer are good, but the ones I like most are Michael Alfred and Nasser Hussain and Ian Smith. Well, Ian Smith was in action this summer in Australia. The reason I like those three is that, and I've heard this said before, that the best cricket commentary doesn't sound like it's at the comedy club. It doesn't sound like it's coming from on high as though it's all high and mighty. It sounds like it's at a country pub where a few friends are having a nice, earnest not too honest, relaxed conversation. That's the tone that they strike. They're not trying to be funny unless humour naturally emerges. And they, they're eloquent, they're interesting, and I find them really, really fun to listen to. I find some of the others a bit boring or a bit too keen to try to drive humour and become a bit cringeworthy. So those three you can call all day for me. Good call. How do you think this summer went with the, the two, and this is for both of you, two seasons ago was the first season Fox and Seven had the commentary and the cricket it was all new and exciting how do you think they went in their second summer i think there was no doubt that fox is up another level really their, yeah yep i, I think they've commentary got, as well commentary as well i i think um i just think overall production they just do a really good job at producing the the cricket i do think that probably this is not commentary but i think the cricket does suffer a little bit by being on fox though because i there are a lot of people that don't have fox they don't have ko Maybe it also suffers a bit being split between two it networks. It does, yeah. And it's hard to actually work out ratings too when they're split. Yeah, I think it suffers as well because I think there are probably some commentators that um, probably get a gig because there is now an expanded roster. And mm. I think that back when Channel 9 um, finished up with it, Mike Hussey was gently shifted off air because I don't think he's interesting enough. But now, um, and I know a lot of people think he's a, a wonderful commentator, great player, but um, now he's getting... Uh, getting a gig again, Brett Lee as well. I think some of these guys that are, uh, they just don't do it for me. And I think that if you could condense it back into one network, then, you know, I'd love to hear Ponting together with, say, um, like Ian Smith this summer. So the two of them together would have been absolutely fantastic. Or So, uh, you know, I think that, um, I, I actually think that Channel 7 do a better job of the commentary than, than Fox do. I, I tended to watch Fox exclusively early on, but towards the end um, switched across to Channel 7 more often than not. Alison Mitchell and Tim Lane, I think, are particularly good. But, um, yeah, it's not bad, but it's certainly not at the halcyon days of, uh, of when Channel 9 was at their best. I tend to not listen to the commentary sometimes too. I do mute it, especially if I'm watching another sport and I'm split screening um, and get too distracted. And I just often like to just do other things while I'm watching. Yeah, I, I, turn, like I do that as well so I can listen to podcasts or split yeah, screen or, or not get coloured by the commentary. Mm. I want to form my own opinions. Absolutely. Sometimes I umpire actually. I can imagine that. <laughs> I turn it down. Imagine and all I'm... sorts of things. <laughs> what are you doing at home? I stand down or, or I come. Or I Do you comment... dress up in an umpire's suit? Of course. Of course. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> you think, I'm, doing you think I'm mad? <laughs> no. So I agree with you, Paul. I think Seven's commentary, especially in the test matches, was really good this year. I didn't think it was as good in the Big Bash. I, I do feel that Fox Cricket have got a bit too caught up in falling in love with all the big names and – not really looking at a balanced team. So I like the fact that Seven has okay. the, the journalists mm. in there, Alan, Alison, mm. Alan Mitchell, Alison Mitchell, Tim Lane. They sort of – I think there's a lot more depth, I think, in the Seven coverage. I, I Fox is very good, but I just feel that, as you say, they've just thought, okay, he played X number of tests, we'll bring him in. Mm. And I do feel that Isha and – Isha and Gilly as – former cricketers and hosts with their teammate doesn't work as well as when you bring someone else in who might see it from a different perspective. But just a small thing. So my three favourite commentators from the summer, Alison Mitchell, she always make, makes my list. Michael Slater, I really like Slats. He doesn't seem to be that popular, but I think he's always a good listen and he's very professional on air and entertaining, opinionated. I think he's much better now that he's away from Channel 9. Channel 9, because they were, um, you know, in this ratings battle with Channel 7, have to pump it up and pump it up, and that's not suitable to uh, Slater's style. 
when he's just on a, in a cricket um, kind of purist commentary and he can start to talk about the game, then he's better. Because there are some that pump it up well, and I don't think he did. I think he's, um, he's more interesting when he's actually just talking about the cricket. And my other third favourite commentator for the summer, Kerry O'Keefe. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. A lot of people yeah. pick him because they think, oh, he's funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's that funny. I just like his technical analysis. He he locks right in on the game sometimes. And I think he's speaking to the the real diehard cricket fans that want to, you know, talk about batting techniques or a bowler's arm being a bit lower. O'Keefe knows those things and digs in on them. He does pull out little moments. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my three. Alison Mitchell, Michael Slater and Kerry O'Keefe nearly made this list. Damien Fleming and Simon Kadic. You were down on Fleming this uh, this summer, Paul, weren't you? Maybe a little bit. I used to used to like him, but maybe he's gone. No, I, I think as well that if if he did less jokes, I'd like him more as well. I think his insights are good. I probably think that he could leave the avenue of apprehension and the doorway to departure behind. Um, but uh, <laughs> all that you know, that's the corridor of uncertainty. What is it? The uh, well, that's the classic, the corridor of uncertainty. But you know, he's got one for every letter. Okay. I think you know. The Boulevard of Bewilderment. I don't know whether I made that up or he's made that up. I don't know. <laughs> what about you, Julissa? Who are some of your favourite commentators? Well, obviously Warney. I am a massive fan of Warney because I I just have, like listening to Have Warnie's. you ever met him or worked with him or interviewed him or done anything like Warnie's that? Warney's about the only person, like a past cricket or anything, I actually haven't met. I don't know. Would you just bow down and praise <laughs> the king? What, I'd like how, to think I'd be very go? professional. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'd just die on the spot. Would you That's... tell him how much you love him? Would you? No, and probably have to change my screensaver before I <laughs> before I like took a call. It'd be, it'd be a real move if you just put that down in front of him before and you did an like, interview and he looks down. Here's you in a Raiders jersey. Yeah. Explain. <laughs> he probably couldn't. He would probably be like, "Who are the Raiders?" Yeah. yeah, probably. He's not a rugby league fan. But do you, do you think Warney's a good commentator? No, I do. I do think Warney's a great commentator because I think that he pulls out. Great moments in the game, and and he his analysis is brilliant. But he's also just funny. He just mm. pulls out. He just says really odd, funny things. He, he does move the needle, and he, yeah, he yes. does not care what he says. Yeah, my favorite thing about anyone who's in either rugby league, cricket, tennis is people who are not afraid to have an opinion. And too many people sit on the fence. But Warney has an opinion, and he'll tell you. And I really enjoy that because cricket is very polite. A lot of cricketers are very polite. Yeah, you don't think Warney gets a bit carried away with his own ego sometimes when you see no. him like eating pies at the back, and sometimes he gets a bit self-involved no, I and love gets that. on the. I love, love the it? characters. I like characters, and I also like really like Isha too because I think she, she's really. Uh, obviously an amazing commentator, but also really great to listen to. Yeah, but sometimes she's like very passive, like very almost too cool. I feel sometimes no, she just like goes along with the blokes too much. I don't feel there's any conflict in that fox. You don't need the conflict, Menace. I think you need conflict. <laughs> Maybe I, I, don't, I think Warnie brings a little bit of <laughs> Maybe conflict. Maybe I do want conflict. <laughs> but she's also just pleasant to listen to. Actually, she's probably someone I unmute because I can sit there and just have her there. That's fair enough. She's got a beautiful voice. She's a beautiful voice. I think Warnie at his best is probably the best, but I think Warnie away from his best is close to the worst. I think he mixes it up a lot. Um, I think that... When he's talking about leg spin or talking about the tactics of the game, he's fantastic. And But just every now and again, I think some of his biases come through. That, that His constant criticism of Steve Waugh or he'll deliberately not mention Steve Waugh's name when he could be mentioned, that sort of wears thin on me. Um, but, yeah, I, generally I think he's a force for the good. It's constant criticism, Stark. Every now and then he'll come out with a gem like next summer should be a five-test series against India. You know, he, he does have an insanely good cricket brain. Mm. Uh, just a bit of a loose cannon. I like the looseness. Clearly. <laughs> All right, Paul. I was thinking before this show that there's a big year of cricket <laughs> ahead, but even for us sort of ardent cricket fans, sometimes we, we forget about what's happening this year for Australian cricket and there's so much going on. I thought it'd be a nice time to take the listeners through what's in store for our Australian men's team over the next, well, to the end of the year. This is quite an interesting little exercise because I thought I knew everything that was, that was going ahead, but there's tours I didn't even know existed. So I'll go through uh, it quickly, but hopefully yeah. this will provide a service for those of you who, like me, were a bit in the dark. So this currently, is going to really help me at work. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so record this, everybody. Um, we're, we're actually recording. This, oh, so. yes, that's right. Oh, oh. Bonus. <laughs> Get your diaries out now. <laughs> so Australia currently in South Africa. Still, we've got the final... Four games over there, one T20 and three one-dayers. Then we're back home for the much-maligned three home one-dayers against New Zealand in March, which will be 
absolutely ignored by everyone except for Menas and me and, and Jaleesa. Then we've got three T20s away to New Zealand in March, which I've never heard anyone talk about. Then there's the IPL on for those who are playing. Starts on the 29th of March and goes all the way through to the 24th of May. It's getting longer, um, it seems. Then we've got in June the two tests away in Bangladesh. Can't wait for that. Australia went there last time and it was a one-all series. And this time I think they'll probably be a lot harder to beat. I think Australia are a lot better than they were last time round. Then we have, uh, surprisingly, 4th to the 16th of July, we're going to England. Three T20s and three one-dayers in England. And we're looking for someone to sponsor Cricket Unfiltered to go there. So Paul asked before this if we could ask if anyone wants to send us over there to cover the tournament. Oh, for yes. sure. Well, not the tournament, the six matches. I'll save up my annual leave at nine. Exactly. Well, even if you don't want us to cover it, but you just like us to go over there and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just, you know, just we, to... we can go there and do no work and just yeah. watch it. So, yeah, if anyone wants to send it, probably 30 grand our way, that'd be great. Amazing. <laughs> should we start a GoFundMe? Yeah, we should. I'm sure it'll be oversubscribed <laughs> instantly. Yeah, oh. Andrew Mentzel's hospital fee. That's what I'll put it in as. <laughs> now, I mean, the one thing about that is, and I've heard it said before, when Australia tour England, it should be special. I, I, I know that they have to meet their obligations for this new three T20s and three ODIs. I wish this tour wasn't existing because I don't want Australia to tour England when it's an afterthought. And yeah, the games will be sold out and they'll be interesting and everything else. But yeah. Then the interesting thing is that the 100 in England starts... I disagree, by the way. You disagree? Yeah, we need the T20 practice ahead of the World Cup. Yeah, I, I like it when Australia goes to England. It's always f- compelling viewing. No, I agree with that, but I'm saying that for the uh, the specialness of the of the of the relationship, I think that we should only be going over there when it really matters. I, agree- I just don't think it, it, it interferes with the Ashes. No, it doesn't interfere with the Ashes, but I think at this time it would be okay. If it was near the Ashes, I'd I'd probably agree. To be fair, I think they probably they didn't play the one day as they would have normally played last summer because the World Cup was on. So, mm. anyway, the um the the hundred then starts, and the reason that's interesting is that several Australian players are in. Involved in that starts on the seventeenth oh, of July, I hate this. goes through to the fifteenth of August. So what this do is you hate the hundred, the hundred. Yeah, oh, wow. Why don't we just keep getting conservative, shorter? Conservative and girl shorter. from Burrowa doesn't like change. It's shorter and shorter. Uh, to be fair, though, when the, when twenty twenty first started, I hated that too. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. But I, was, I don't. I now. hate. I fear change, but I, I, I've come around to the hundred. I, I just think it's a it's, it's a rebranded T twenty comp. Yeah, I the one thing about it is that. I don't know why they couldn't have made it as T20, but that's the way they're going. The thing is that they should have cancelled their other, the NatWest Blast, that that tournament. The counties are too powerful over there. The NatWest Blast is great, but get rid of it and give the 100 clear air. But anyway, the reason it's interesting from an Australian point of view is that that series that goes from the 17th of July to the 15th of August, and we've got players like Steve Smith and David Warner who are going to be in it. To be in it. Aaron Finch. Pat Cummins. That David now, Warner. Indeed. Mitchell Stork. That now um, clashes with three one-dayers that we're playing against Zimbabwe at home in August. So I think there's a bit of a stink about this from managers. What? Because that was initially scheduled for June, those winter one-dayers. They've moved them to August, and so um, we. Pro- I, I think the players will – we won't be able to have them. They've signed up to the 100 in good faith. I think we'll be playing Zimbabwe with um, without the players in the 100, and I think that's the way it should be. Oh, that's... Um, heard Peter Lawler on the radio – our good friend from the Australian chief cricket writer, and he was asked about this, and he straight away, without hesitation, said, don't care about the 100. International cricket comes first. The players go to Zimbabwe. No, Zimbabwe's coming here. Zimbabwe's coming here. What? Zimbabwe's here. It's in winter. But I totally agree with him. They're playing them here. Mm. Yeah. I thought we were going to Zimbabwe. That makes... That's weird. Where will we play them? Up in the north somewhere. Fair enough. Well, I like winter cricket. No, I agree in principle. That's part of my SCG plan. This, um, this put a hotel will, in play, a winter cricket This comp. will get – those Zimbabwe games will get absolutely no coverage by right in the middle of rugby league. Oh, I think that Cricket Australia are only hosting them because they are now obliged to. And so they just go, well, we've got to put them somewhere. They're not going to get any coverage, but we have to have them. I would agree with you all, uh, and in principle – Absolutely, I don't care about the 100 international cricket should take precedence a billion percent. But given that when the Australian players signed up for that, they were under the impression that those games were going to be in June, I think that that's an issue. And also the 100 will be better prepped for the T20 World Cup than the series against the Zimbabweans. Yeah. So I I think that I'd be very, very disappointed if I was um, an Australian player who'd committed to one of these franchises thinking that I had clear air. And then because they couldn't get their own schedule right, they've changed it. So that's where, I, that's where I'd sort of differ from. But normally I'd agree with what Lawler said. Paul, well, do people know what the 100 is? Should we maybe explain the 100? Sure. It's a 100-ball competition. Yeah. 
But I, don't, I think a so lot of people, when I've mentioned the hundred, have absolutely so no eight, idea eight what I'm talking about. Franchises in England. Yeah. Leeds, well, I can't, I can't even remember the names. Birmingham, London Fire. That's it. Well, is it Welsh Fire? Um, anyway, there's eight teams. They've been branded, um, and it's it's a hundred ball comp. And I think the difference is it, is it's five ball overs. Yep. And one bowler can bowl up to ten balls in a row. Yes. Yep. So you could have, say, Mitchell Stark open the bowling, the ball's hooping around, and the captain goes, all right, you bowl 10 balls straight and see if you can get a couple of wickets. Everyone I've talked to about the 100 doesn't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so we're yeah, obviously not talking to the right people. Obviously not. No, it's true that we're in this bubble where we, we hear think, about it all the time yeah. and, and talk about it. So, yeah, it's a good point. So the big controversy was cricket... I just imagine like a doctor putting an X-ray over our brains, Paul, and like a cricket bat and ball coming up or something. <laughs> just... Away. England cricket needed their own equivalent of the BBL and the IPL, which is ironic because they were the ones who invented T20 cricket and then got left behind. <coughs> and they desperately wanted to get cricket back on free-to-air TV. It hasn't been on free-to-air TV in, in England since 2005. So they started this their own city-based T20 competition, but they decided to make it 100 balls rather than 120. Initially, they sort of made it out that the TV networks wanted that, but then it kind of transpired that that really wasn't the case. And it's been shortened to fit between the two news programs on the BBC almost. So in any way, in any case, if you remember when the T20, uh, the BBL started in Australia, everyone was up in arms about it, all the traditionalists and whatever else, saying this is ridiculous. In yep. England, multiply that by 100 because the big difference over there is that there are plenty of people who are not just like we are, we like to see New South Wales win, but they are passionate about their counties and they're saying, wait a minute, I live, I, I support, you know, um, uh, middle Essex. Sex. Middle, well, no, I support Essex. I'm not going to suddenly support a London team. And, and then and I think hopefully what will happen is that they'll go through the same journey we've gone through and say, okay, it's for the kids, it's for bringing new audiences in, it's a bit of fun, and if, it's, um, if it succeeds, as I'm sure it will, then we can still enjoy county cricket and test cricket and, and go down that path. So but the at Aussie the moment, play should be there, not in playing Why didn't Zimbabwe. they just make it 2020? Well, that's the big question. I think partially it was that well, they, they were trying to make it shorter but, but for TV. think about it, and, and this is what I've sort of come to the conclusion, at some point it's good to be polarizing and, and and drive conversation now if they just launched another t20 competition it wouldn't have have had the sort of furious debate that's, that's true centered around it in the last two years so when it actually starts a lot of people will hate watch it to begin with and the mm. other thing is that and this is something that's really enraging the, the 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 tried and true fans but they're saying to bring new audiences in it's so simple to be able to say it's a hundred balls how many balls have we had? 50. How many have we got to go? 50. Rather than having to uh, assume that the, the fans know all about how overs work and everything else. Because you've got to realise, cricket in England is a much smaller sport than it is in Australia. There's huge swathes of the English population who have no interest in cricket whatsoever. So if you're trying to get them involved, they're sort of saying, let's make it as simple as possible. And so that's mm. part of the reasoning behind it as well. I just like, how low can we go? Are we just going to have super over cricket soon? <laughs> well, we've had the T10 tournaments in, um, in Dubai, oh, which yeah. have been... T50, 50 balls. So we're, <laughs> let's continue on okay. Australia's schedule. So we're up to Zimbabwe. What happens after that? So after the three home one day, one day is in Zimbabwe, we've got six T20 internationals in Australia in October in preparation for the T20 World Cup. So we play three against the West Indies, three against India. Then we've got the T20 World Cup. Uh, the Australia's games, uh, we play Pakistan at the SCG. We play West Indies at Optus Stadium in Perth. We play one of the qualifiers at the Gabba. We play one of the other qualifiers at the Adelaide Oval. Then we play New Zealand in the at the MCG. If we make it to the semi-finals, one's at the SCG, one's at the Adelaide Oval, and the final is at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Do you think Australia will be in the final? Yes, yes or no? they'll win. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Talk about putting. <laughs> Let's not put Tick pressure on. <laughs> so after they win the final at the MCG, they then play in Afghanistan in November for the first ever Test match against Afghanistan, which I think will be at the Wacker. And as we said last podcast, welcome to Test cricket um, in Australia, Afghanistan. You can face us at the fastest, most bounciest pitch in the world. Then we've got a four-test series against India, in November to January. Then there's the BBL, obviously. Then we've got three one-dayers against India at home, three one-dayers against New Zealand at home in January. Potentially, though, I've heard that could be a tri-series. Then we're off to February and March with three tests against South Africa. Again, if you would like to fund us to go to that, please send us a cheque for $30,000. Finally, March, we're playing three T20s against New Zealand in New Zealand because we're actually going to be then preparing for the next T20 World Cup, which is on which is next year. And then there's the IPL again in April and May. And then we'll conclude this little summary. In June, there is the one-off World Test Championship final 
at Lords, which unless something amazing happens, Australia will be in and I think we'll win. Well, could be facing India. Well, really good update there, listeners, from Paul Dennett. That is the most – that's really handy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, Just keep these notes. I, oh, I definitely will. That'll be copy and pasted right into my important file. I hate the fact that we haven't played the 2020 World Cup again next year. Oh, it's stupid. It's oh, India it's so ruling the roost. And Australia wins it the first ever time, mm. and they could have lost the title six months no, later in no. India. It's, it's and a you've bit got of to start preparing again. It's yeah. a little bit of BS by the ICC. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Can't Let It Go. I just want to remind you, if you've got time, go on to the um, Apple Podcast Store or, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review. We always like to get your feedback. And uh, when we come back from the break, we'll just start off with a little bit of sound of Paul and I commentating. We sort of handed out some commentary advice before, so I think it's only fair that we play some of our average commentary for <laughs> you guys to assess as well. re-recorded. <laughs> Many in. Sanger waits and oh he's bowled him. Many's got his third wicket. He's gone right through the defence of Jason Sanger and Many's on fire here. He's bowled Solway. Now he's bowled Sanger. And if anything that was an even better ball than the one that dismissed Solway. That one has moved appreciably because that one he wasn't quite as wide on the crease and that has beaten the defence of Sanger and as you often say, that would have got many batsmen out. He's not, not done too much wrong there, I don't think, Jason Sanger. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm with Paul Dennett and Jaleesa Apps, star sports reporter from Channel 9. I forgot that at the beginning. That was Paul and I at the Sheffield Shield. So any commentary critiques, ozcricketpod at gmail.com if you want to um, get into us about our commentary. You guys are great. Thank you, Jaleesa. Thank you. We really are. Good energy and I just really enjoy it. That's Lisa. nice. I have you on my when I sit at my desk and I'm working. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> sports reporting isn't really working. I have you going through my headphones and I yeah, it's great. Oh, well, thank you for listening and for that good feedback. Now, let's get into Can't Let It Go. There's a few things that are bits of cricket news that I can't let go of. So we'll start with you, Jaleesa. Uh, what's the one bit of cricket news that just kind of stuck with you? Uh, well, this was just a little bit of humour for everyone. Uh, Trump pronouncing Sachin Tendulkar's name wrong and Virat Kohli. Uh, I think we should just roll it. Uh, this was in India uh, at one of India's biggest cricket grounds. He was talking about the cricketers that he could not pronounce their name. Let's listen. Some of the world's greatest cricket players... From Suchin Tendulkar to Virat Kohli. Kohli went okay with <laughs> Suchin Tendulkar. Suchin. If I'd done that when I was at the press conference with Tendulkar a few weeks ago, I think I'd have been escorted out of there calling him <laughs> Suchin Tendulkar. The funny thing is it is like, it's phonetic. <laughs> His name is actually phonetic, so I don't know how he quite... Yeah, I agree. The reason he couldn't pronounce it properly is he's is because he's an idiot. <laughs> I knew Paul would fire up about this. Uh, let's just hear it one more time for Paul. Where your people cheer on some of the world's greatest cricket players from Suchin Tendo. This is the leader of the free world. Wow. I can't believe the rest of the world does their world doesn't revolve around cricket like we do. Yeah. <laughs> What's Trump doing at three AM in the morning when he can't sleep? They all still cheer though in India, so they <laughs> mustn't have cared. Well that's a, actually just touching on a good point there that the Sardar Patel Stadium in Ahmedabad is actually going to take over from the MCG as the world's biggest cricket ground. It's got a capacity of hundred and ten thousand people. So, well done to India. Disappointing. And Victoria, you know, come on. Now uh, you can surely put in a stand on top of the Great Southern Stand and, mm -hmm. and take us back in charge. Keep now, Paul, what's your can't let it go for this this week? It's a good news story. I can't let go how great the wicket was at the SCG for the Shield game that we just saw a week ago. Adam Lewis, the, the curator, deserves a great deal of plaudits. I have been fuming about the state of the SCG for the last few years. I think the Test match pitches have been very poor. Uh, they've produced dull cricket. And even this year's test match pitch, which was a, an improvement, I wasn't all that, you know, in love with it. But there was a T20 game, I think it was the last game before the final at the SCG. It was the best uh, white ball pitch I've seen at the SCG in years. This was the best red ball pitch I've seen at the SCG in years. Whatever this guy's salary is, add a zero to the end of it um, and make him in charge of every, every stadium in the country. 
Wow. So Paul's got <laughs> Paul for a pay rise for Adam Lewis. He's, he'll be big fan of yours after this show. I don't think many people God, have... I reckon we can expect a pretty good Apple review coming up. <laughs> yeah. Now, Paul had to select that one because I actually took his Can't Let It Go before him. I know Paul would have done this one. Probably. This week, and the most incredible footage was found of Sir Donald Bradman playing cricket in a match at the SCG in February 1949. He was playing in his second last first-class innings in a testimonial match for two of his old New South Wales captains, Alan Kippax and Bert Oldfield. And that was the SCG. So apparently a guy called George Hobbs took a camera in and took some footage of this wonderful event and then his son donated this footage to the National Film and Sound Archive, but it was just marked Manly and Bondi Beach, Sydney, 1949. They had no idea what was on it. And then last week, someone was just going through it and saw this amazing colour footage of Donald Bradman. I encourage you to go and find it because it is actually breathtaking seeing him in motion picture quality colour. And this is at the end of his career. So he's not even, you know, he's in his 40s by this stage. And he still looked amazing. There was a couple mm. of shots there playing to the leg side. And, yeah, just just a wonderful historical artefact that was found. He had it fully retired because he had no intention of playing again. It, it had been three months since he'd had a hit. And he only played three games in that summer of 48-49. I think they were all for testimonial reasons. So, he, you know, long since really given it away. I wish that um, someone who uh, has a lot of money would and just wants mm-hmm. to, doesn't know what to do with it, would fund... Peter Jackson to to put a cricket program together the same way they did with World War One. If anyone who's seen that film, um, They Shall Not Grow Old, where Peter Jackson, mm. the film director, mm. got old World War One footage, and you look at it and you just think, yeah, you know, that's it is what it is. It's 106 years old. Slowed it down, tidied it up, put it, uh, colorized it artificially, and suddenly you look at it and it's like, oh my, these are humans. This is this is scarily real. It wouldn't work quite as well with old footage of Bradman because a lot of it's, you know, the, the actual cameras can't get close enough. But I'd love it if they could um, try to replicate that for some more stuff. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I've just been watching <laughs> World War Two in colour on Netflix, which at least is like, you guys are so boring. Uh, she probably thinks I that we were at World War Two. <laughs> I watch weird... Louis Throw documentaries not, okay, on Netflix. Not, we weren't in World War Two, Julissa, just to make that clear. What was it like? Just Vietnam. I did it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it was better than the First World War. I did a tell tour. me stories. <laughs> tour of duty in Vietnam was rough, though. Um, <laughs> all right, well, that's it. That's how Can't Let It Goes. We've smashed through all the news. Julissa, how are you going with Cricket Unfiltered? I love it. Yeah. I really, really love it. Um, I enjoy this, doing this so much, and I love the new premises, the Piccolo Podcasts. Yeah, full studio. If you need a podcast studio, yeah, get in touch. It is schmick. Yeah, a few running repairs to come, but hello at Piccolo Podcasts if you, know you want to get in touch. Do you know what I really like about doing the podcast is um, as much as I really love my job at Channel 9, if my boss is listening. <laughs> <laughs> and no, you're amazing at your job. I think. I genuinely do. And um, I'm very lucky to go out and interview a lot of cricketers and, and a lot of sports people. And um, I do love my job. The one downside of it is you get a minute 30 mm. every night mm. to put everything that you've had in a, sometimes a really great day and we had this problem today into a minute 30 whereas I feel like on the podcast we can just talk yeah. and talk and talk and and also you can't really have an opinion on the news yeah that's you, right you can hear fantastic well Paul thank you for um today and tonight thank you Andrew thank you Jaleesa fun thank as always you. thank you listeners for tuning in uh, we'll be back next week with another show and uh so much cricket going on still it just never ends but Lock into this Women's World Cup because there's some thrilling matches going on and we'll be back next week with a new podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.